If you come to the seventh lecture in this series on Lawrence's critical fortunes during his life and since his death, you will learn that the peak of Lawrence's popularity was reached nearly 40, 40 years ago, around about 1970. So we all have the pleasure of being 40 years behind the times. 1970 might have been before your parents and after your grandparents were at secondary school, but ask members of either of the generations above, and you may well find that Lawrence loomed far larger in their consciousnesses when they were your age than he does in yours now. It can be a lonely experience choosing to specialise in Lawrence at university now, as opposed to... As opposed to to, say, his contemporaries, T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, or James Joyce. But speak to a grandparent, and especially, it has to be said, a grandfather, and especially a working-class, bearded grandfather. And he will probably be able to tell you much about how Lawrence was taught in his own time. So if, in the year in which this lecture hall was opened, 1964, a lecturer had asked the students how much Lawrence they had already read, most would have read a great deal indeed. It's unusual to have a series of nine lectures, that's seven and two classes, on Lawrence, which is, in fact, a sign of the times, which is a modest critical upswing, which I'm doing everything I can to be part of. To give you an overview of these lectures, which is also on your handouts, this lecture is on Lawrence's relationship to consciousness and to the recently, in his time, theorised unconscious. What did Lawrence make of Freud, of the mind-body problem? How do we deal with the fact that he seems to contradict himself in explicitly advocating and theorising and making conscious unconscious being? This, I should say, is the shortest but also the densest of the lectures. Next week will concern Lawrence's mistakenly, supposedly absent, in other words, it isn't absent, sense of humour, wit, drollery, jocularity, facetiousness, amusement and fun. The third lecture will be on Lawrence's relationship to Christianity, to God and to Christ, whom he in many ways resembles. He was aware of this, and so were his disciples. But insofar as Lawrence consciously measured himself up against Christ, it was as a rival, a critic, a lifestyle coach, and an assailant. He railed at him as he railed at his very best friends. He certainly never left Christianity behind, even though he came to reject some of its ethics, most of its dogma. Nor was he ever, I would say, an atheist. The fourth lecture will look at Lawrence's relation to other countries, and in particular the two which meant a lot to him, Germany and Italy, but it will follow him in his travels to Ceylon, Australia, the USA, Mexico, Switzerland and France, where he died. It will consider his views on ethnicity and race. The fifth lecture, in a slight change to what was on the, um, the printed lecture list, will look in more detail at one of the areas discussed in the fourth lecture, which is the Alps. Alpine scenery became part of Lawrence's psychic landscape, as anyone who has read Women in Love knows. 
And anyone who has ever been in high mountains may be able to appreciate the fact that he writes about it better than any other prose writer of the 20th century, with whom I'm familiar. The sixth lecture concerns Lawrence's relationship to the non-human world, birds, beasts and children. I think that he wrote about children as well as nature with more acuity than anyone I can think of. The seventh lecture, um, as I mentioned, deals with Lawrence's popularity and critical reputation over time and introduces to you the major names in Lawrence criticism. I'll particularly be, dis be discussing the trial of Penguin Books for publishing an un unexpurgated edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1960 and what followed from the fact that Penguin, rather than the Crown, won. I'll also consider the relative popularity of his different genres of work over time. Lawrence stands out amongst writers of any time or place for the number of genres he wrote in. Novels, short stories, poems, translations from Italian and Russian into English, letters, literary criticism, social criticism, historiography, psychology and his travel writings which are a combination of many of the above. He also painted. Given the amount that he wrote in 44 years of declining health, it's a wonder that he found any time for living. Only if, of course, writing isn't living. Finally, in eighth week, there will be two classes in a seminar room to be announced, at times and days to be announced. This will be a chance to ask questions and offer your own opinions, and most people do sooner rather than later find that they have an opinion on Lawrence. The first class will be on fascism, one reason why Lawrence was relatively unpopular during the Second World War was that people like Bertrand Russell said that Lawrence's ideas, quote, led straight to Auschwitz. Like Nietzsche, who had a considerable influence on him, <coughs> he was accused of proto- or pseudo-fascism, particularly in the last decade of his life, which was the 1920s. He died in 1930 and I am certain that he would have denounced all continental fascist movements and indeed Stalinism had he lived to see their ugliest developments. But I also see that there is something in the charge against Lawrence, as there is also something in the charge against Nietzsche. The second class will be on his plays, which offer an interesting perspective um, on the rest of his works, but are generally very little known. And this class will involve some dramatic enactment on the part of willing volunteers. So to start on today's topic, which is consciousness. In practice, that means that it's also about the unconscious, the intellect, the brain, the body, and the soul. Um, in dealing with this topic first, I'm really taking a Laurentian bull by the horns, but hopefully it will indicate some, way of, some ways of reading him and of reading his contradictions, because if you expect Lawrence not to contradict himself, you will have an extremely frustrating time in trying to write about him. But I'm going to start with a man who was theorising the mind in a way that was new in the history of humankind, whilst Bertie, as he was then known, Lawrence was a little boy running around the Nottinghamshire coal mining town of Eastwood, Sigmund Freud. There are several reasons for starting with him. 
First, Lawrence entered adulthood at precisely the time that Freud's theories were first being popularised in England. Second, both writers thought and wrote a great deal about sex and saw sexuality as central to the functioning of the individual. Third, when Lawrence went round to visit his former professor of modern foreign languages at Nottingham University, Ernest Weekly, on the 16th of March 1912, and Professor Weekly happened to be out, and Lawrence was in, entertained instead by Professor Weekly's aristocratic German wife, the first thing that, Freud, that, that Frieda ever spoke to Lawrence about was Freud. And the reason for this was that Frieda herself had recently had an affair with Otto Gross, who was a maverick poet disciple of Freud's. Fourth, in the very year after Lawrence eloped with Frieda, he published his second novel, Sons and Lovers. This is heavily autobiographical and concerns the tension between Paul Morel's emotions as a son and as a lover his mother's demands that he be a son rather than a lover, or a lover-son, and his fractious relationship with his father. It was therefore immediately seized upon by contemporary critics as a sophisticated literary exploration of the Oedipus complex. Yet Lawrence is very definitely not a Freudian. For one thing, there is no firm evidence that he ever read Freud, that doesn't mean that he didn't, and in fact, he was likely to have read at least some. Freud was fashionable in the artistic and intellectual circles which Lawrence was entering in the early teens of the 20th century. And he'd just fallen in love with a stranger who opened a conversation by talking about Freud. On the other hand, Lawrence did tend to mention what he was reading in his letters, and the eight published volumes of these letters make no mention of Freud's works. That didn't in any case, however much or little he read of Freud, stop him from stridently disagreeing with him, or dismissing his ideas as magic and charlatanry. He makes this clear in his 1921 work, Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious. Or rather, he doesn't actually make it clear, because this is a notoriously unclear work amongst Lawrence's non-fiction. This was pointed out to him, so he wrote another book in the following year, containing very much the same ideas and some new ones, which is much clearer and more entertaining. Its playfulness is reflected in the title, Fantasia of the Unconscious. And those two works are often found in the same volume, Psychoanalysis on the Unconscious and Fantasia of the Unconscious. Um, and over the course of this lecture, since it concerns consciousness, I'm going to be qu quoting from both of those. Lawrence's main conceptual arguments with Freud are, as I see it, as follows. First, Freud imp implied that repression in general is wrong, including, for example, repression of the desire to commit incest. We unconsciously repress desires all the time, and this can lead to psychological disorders, which is why psychotherapy often works by bringing up into consciousness what had been repressed in order to deal with it. 
In fact, to claim that Freud said that all repression is unhealthy is grossly to misread Freud, but as we've seen, Lawrence didn't necessarily read Freud. And this criticism would certainly have fitted with a popularised version of him. Secondly, Lawrence found Freud too concerned with sex. As he says, we are bound to admit that into all human relationships, particularly adult human relationships, a large element of sex enters. We are thankful that Freud has insisted on this. We are thankful that Freud pulled us somewhat to earth out of all our clouds of superfineness. Half a loaf is better than no bread. But really, there is the other half of the loaf. All is not sex. And a sexual motive is not to be attributed to all human activities. We know it without need to argue. Was the building of the cathedrals a working up towards the act of coition? Don't let us have sex for tea. We've all got too much of it under the table. And really, for my part, I prefer to keep mine there, no matter what the Freudians say about me. Third, Freud thought that men were fundamentally unintegrated. The way in which a Freudian man is put together is forever, to some degree, unreconciled, conflicted. His view of life was more tragic than comic. Lawrence thought or hoped that an individual could be reconciled within himself, if only he lived in the kind of ways that Lawrence was trying to feel his way towards making conscious and then advocating. Much of Lawrence's aim in his fiction and non-fiction is to tell and, and show us just this. In addition, Lawrence thought that Freud lowered the dignity of mankind. Remember those three supposed 19th century hammer blows to the, to the dignity and status of humanity, Darwin, Marx, Freud... Lawrence thought that humans frequently abased themselves, but that humanity itself was not necessarily low or disgusting. His reaction to Freud, in other words, is tinged by indignation and a touch of prudery. We waited as Freud went into the cave of the unconscious. He came out with sex and excrement, which dissolved in the light of day. Fourth, Lawrence charged that Freud's unconscious is a production of the conscious mind. The unconscious is a concept, therefore it's conscious, therefore it, it enacts a paradox. This is a more interesting point, and we'll see how Lawrence strained to avoid falling into the same contradiction of which he accused Freud in describing an unconscious which cannot be conceived only experienced. His hostility to Freud on this point may in part have been based on self-recognition. He also objected to Freud's unconscious on the grounds that it was a negation, the projected absence of something, the unconscious, rather than something substantial in its own right. Now, this is unfair to Freud. It was precisely one of the distinguishing characteristics of Freud's unconscious or Unbewusstsein, originally he called it das Unterbewusstsein, that was signified by the word. Consider the difference between I unconsciously scratched my head 
and I scratched my head because something in my unconscious prompted me to do so. In the first case, unconscious means an absence of consciousness. In the second, it refers to the contents of the mind which is not habitually accessed by or indeed accessible to the consciousness. It was around 1870 that the term unconscious was first used in this more positive way. But Lawrence wanted a still more substantial bodily kind of unconsciousness and he didn't want a negative term for it, un-something. He came up with another which he preferred, not that he came up with it, the word had been around for over a millennium. It is soul. This word has a chequered history. It developed as a translation of several different concepts. The Greek pnevma, or breath, as in pneumatic, the Latin genius, the Latin spiritus, or spirit, the Latin anima. The English word soul became associated with the essence of an individual which could survive death, but for a long time it embraced the whole spectrum of consciousness, including the intellect. But in the 19th century, the soul became particularly associated with the unconscious. And this neatly fits with the way in which Lawrence uses the term, which he does abundantly. The term also had the advantages for him of being ancient and religious. He was happy, though, to make it cooperate with modern technological and psychological vocabulary. So, for example, Kreitsch's rather terrible appearance was photographed upon Gudrun's soul away beneath her consciousness. The human soul had been around for a long time, photography for less than a century. But once it came, Lawrence supposed that something could be photographed on a soul, at least in metaphor. Lawrence says that he can't define soul, but nor could a bike define its rider. Our mistake is to pretend that there's no one in the saddle. Let me repeat that. He can't define soul, but nor could a bike define its rider. Our mistake is to pretend that there's no one in the saddle. In Lawrence's time, the term soul was, in part, the slightly old-fashioned and embarrassing term that it is again today. How many of us in everyday speech uses without self-consciousness the term soul? There is some of this defensiveness and embarrassment in Lawrence's use of it in a passage in Women in Love. Those of you who've read this novel will know that it opens with a wedding between someone called Laura and someone called Tibbs. Tibbs is very late for his own wedding for the reason that he has got into a discussion with someone else about the immortality of the soul. When a friend called Marshall hears of this at the reception after the wedding, he scoffs. Sounds as if you were going to be executed instead of married. The immortality of the soul. But he fell quite flat. So Marshall then storms off from the conversation with the comment, too much bloody soul and talk altogether. Thus neatly anticipating many critics' objections to women in love as a whole too much bloody soul and talk 
altogether. Marshall is not an admirable character and the ridicule of his scepticism near the novel's beginning lends weight to the novel's many subsequent uses of the term soul. But it's also worth noticing that Lawrence wasn't alone in using it. The novel is set in the near present and several of the arty intellectual set who were gathered around a character called Hermione used the term in their conversation. In fact, it had newly been made fashionable, partly as a result of the craze for Russian literature, in which the equivalent term, dusha, was or was perceived to be a very important concept. At this time of the craze for Russian literature, which roughly coincided with the First World War in England, many people used the term soul with a capital letter, especially when talking about the Russian soul. Now, Lawrence, who ridiculed the Russian craze, whilst in part taking part in it, never did this. But it wasn't just the influence of Russian literature which made the term fashionable. There was, in general, around the First World War, an interest in England in depth psychology. This drew not only on modern psychoanalysis, but on Christian theology, non-Christian theologies, there was a lot of interest in Hinduism, and various kinds of modern mysticism like theosophy. This was also the boon time for spiritualism and seances. Lawrence was not distinctive, therefore, in being interested in these things, nor did he stand out alone in disagreeing with Freud. He was distinctive in the particular conclusions he came to. He wasn't a camp follower, and he can't be described as an ist of any kind. He was a Laurentian, and he found followers. Now, to try and describe what his ideas were, you have to have a slight digression on the mind-body problem. This problem has kept theologians philosophers and medical doctors in disagreement with each other for as long as their disciplines have existed. The problem is, are mental phenomena physical phenomena? And if not, how do mental phenomena relate to physical phenomena? Dualists give the answer that the mind and the body are separate substances. Plato and Descartes believed this. There may be causal interactions in one or both directions between them, but they are separate kinds of thing. The body takes up space, the mind doesn't. Monists, as the name suggests, hold that there is only one kind of substance, but they differ as to what this is. Idealist monists believe that everything is mental. The 18th century Irish philosopher Bishop Berkeley advocated this view, that to be is to be perceived. The fact that a table is hard or that a whiteboard is white is a mental phenomenon. Materialist monists believe the opposite, that everything is material. Hobbes was a materialist. Richard Dawkins is one. Now, on this spectrum, Lawrence is very hard to place. The fact that there is confusion can partly be explained in terms of his heterodox attitude towards scientific and philosophical language altogether. He said in Fantasia of the Unconscious that science doesn't answer any problems, just sets more.
with their fingers in their noses. Quote that to some of your scientist friends. However, he did not dismiss science outright and claimed that he himself was being a kind of scientist, one that used not just his intellect or his powers of observation, but his whole being. He called this subjective science, such as he thought the Egyptians and the Greeks had had when science and religion were in accord. He also says that his science and philosophy come from his literary writing rather than the other way round. Quote, this pseudo-philosophy of mine, and that is his term, this pseudo-philosophy of mine is deduced from the novels and poems, not the reverse. Indeed, there is a strong degree of correspondence between Lawrence's non-fiction and his fiction, which is why, if you're interested in Lawrence, it is very well worth reading the non-fiction too. So to return to the question of whether Lawrence was a monist or a dualist or something else, on the one hand, at times, he seems to be a dualist. He wrote in a letter to Ernest Smith in 1909, You were my first live teacher of philosophy, you showed me the way out of a torturing, crude monism, past pragmatism, into a sort of crude but appeasing pluralism. But at times he talks about three levels of individual existence, the body, the spirit, which is mental, and the soul, which isn't exactly either. And then again, at times he sounds like a materialist when he says... There is no utterly immaterial existence, no spirit. The distinction is between living plasm and inanimate matter. Look at how often he describes rocks as living. It's a split in the living rock. Or he discusses whether a chair is living or not. But then there can be inanimate matter. When Gerald dies, his corpse is described as inanimate. It's merely a corpse because of the way he died. It's not always easy to follow Lawrence, and as I say, I've been quoting here from several works, Psychoanalysis of the Unconscious, Fantasia of the Unconscious, and Studies in Classic American Literature. But the sense overall that I have of him is this. Everything in the universe is of two kinds, alive material and dead material. This is not the distinction between, a, let us say, a live rabbit and the corpse of a rabbit. It is the distinction between something which is spiritually alive and something which has no spiritual existence at all. Every person has a soul. It is created out of nothing at their conception. They have a body and they also have a mind or spirit or consciousness. He uses those three terms pretty much interchangeably. The soul is the most important part of the individual and should take control of everything else. Neither the body nor the mind should be allowed to take charge. At death, the body sinks towards earth and is of no further importance. The soul splits into component parts, and now we're in one of the odder parts of Fantasia of the Unconscious, the soul splits into its component parts and flies towards the sun and the moon. But it still has a physical nature and is part of the physical matter of the whole universe. So far, so confused. Now, because male and female bodies are different, 
Therefore, male and female souls are necessarily different. And this is one issue that cultural feminists, as opposed to those feminists who believe that gender is culturally... um, Sorry, which is to say those who believe that gender is culturally determined, that's one of the issues that they have with Lawrence, that there is a difference between the male soul and the female soul. In Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious, he anatomatizes the body in terms of spiritual principles. So, the back of the body is connected with the male principle, the cervical ganglia, the lumbar ganglion, and the sacral ganglion. Each has its associated spiritual principles. The front of the body contains the female principle, the cervical plexus, the solar plexus, and the hypogastric plexus. Changes in the body are therefore also soul changes, as, for example, at puberty. The nose indicates character. Look at people's body shapes in Lawrence. They're always important. They always mean something. It's important that Lady Chatterley's bottom is not small. It can't be for her to be the character that she is. It's also important that um, her lover's thighs are not large. Large thighs on men are always suspicious for Lawrence, just as small bottoms are on women. Teething hurts us because we've become too spiritual. And before you decide that this is all too odd, bear in mind that you don't need to be fully versed in this physiological, metaphysical psychology in order to read his works, though some knowledge of it does help. And secondly, Lawrence was writing at a time at which ideas which are far, far stranger than any around now were current, and many of them were, from a modern perspective, repugnant. So let us say, roughly then, that for Lawrence, everything is material, only some things are spiritually alive. Electricity, for him, can be spiritual and is involved in the body, precisely as modern scientists believe that it is. In Women in Love, Hermione at one stage gets in in a rage with her almost ex-lover, Birkin, and tries to kill him by bashing in his skull with a lapis lazuli paperweight. He's reading a book, and as she stands there, holding the paperweight above him, quote, terrible shocks ran over Hermione's body like shocks of electricity, as if many volts of electricity suddenly struck her down. True, technically, this is a simile, as if many volts of electricity struck her down. But it is often the case with Lawrence's similes that they are interchangeable with literal usage. He doesn't actually need the as if, and on another occasion he might not have used it. For example, Birkin describes Japanese jiu-jitsu fighters as possessing a curious kind of full electric fluid, like eels. That isn't metaphor. In Fantasia of the Unconscious, successful sex is, quote, the bringing together of the surcharged electric blood of the male with the polarised electric blood of the female, with the result of a tremendous flashing interchange which changes the constitution of the blood and the very quality of being in both. 
But there is also an aspect of the human body which is not spiritually important. If someone involuntarily farts, for example, that is meaningless. It does not indicate degradation of that person's soul. Lawrence therefore also distinguishes between two kinds of dream. There are soul dreams which interpret the soul to itself. But actually he considers those to be a minority of dreams. He considers the majority of dreams to be merely mechanical, to be produced by, for example, eating too much cheese before bedtime. And here again is a point of disagreement with Freud, who considered most dreams, if not quite all, to be of deep psychological significance. After Birkin has been biffed on the head by Hermione, he hasn't been killed because Hermione's fingers came between his head and the paperweight, he leaves her house and wanders out into the countryside. Once he reaches a copse on a hillside, he takes off all his clothes, lies down in the vegetation and kind of has sex with it. Now, this event is presented primarily as a movement of the soul, not as a kind of madness having been brought on by virtue of having been biffed on the head. After he has had this ecstasy, which is spiritually important, he takes the train into Nottingham and then he starts feeling really bad. He has concussion, in other words. He has a week or two in bed. But the narrative shows nothing of this week or two in bed because it is merely an illness of the body, of no spiritual importance to Birkin. I think that Lawrence considered his own developing tuberculosis insofar as he allowed himself to think about it at all, in these terms, as spiritually irrelevant, as having no connection to his essential soul. When, he, when Birkin visits the woman who will become his next lover, Ursula, um, and he is looking phosphorescent, he replies to her question, don't you feel well, with, I hadn't thought about it. Ursula responds, you ought to suffer, a man who takes as little notice of his body as that. The narrative itself takes little notice, and in the same way as Birkin, Lawrence disliked physiologically determined states, and much of his writing can be understood as a struggle to transcend them. So the body should be kept in its place, but the mind should be kept in its place also. It should not seek to dictate to or diminish the rest of the self, which he calls the spontaneous centres. The job of control, as I've said before, should be done by the soul. And especially, as anyone who's read the um, lengthy extract on your handouts will know, the mind should not seek to encompass sex. In Lawrence's version of The Fall of Man... And he did a lot of this rewriting of biblical stories, as we'll see, um, see in the third week. In his version of the fall of man, the expulsion from paradise happened because sex was brought into the mind. Adam and Eve had been happily having sex. What went wrong was when they started thinking about it. Then they became ashamed. Then they knew they were naked. Then they had to make clothes. Consciousness also inhibits spontaneity, and spontaneity is a great good for Lawrence. He says, spontaneous distaste should take the place of right and wrong. 
In other words, you shouldn't condemn something because you know it to be wrong, but because your soul revolts from it in involuntary, spontaneous disgust. So there are scenes in Lawrence's novels in which characters entirely lose their self-consciousness. The mind's role has been curtailed, and this is generally good for them. Again, in Women in Love, Birkin wrestles with his best friend, Gerald, naked. They're both a bit embarrassed by this at first, but they gradually get into it, and as they do, they learn a kind of mutual physical understanding. And when they do, they wrestle better. Eventually, they are wrestling swiftly, rapturously, intent and mindless at last. Birkin's eyes are wide and dreadful and sightless. Afterwards, when they are panting and recovering, Birkin comments, one ought to wrestle and strive and be physically close. It makes one sane. So it follows that the intellect should be kept in check. Lawrence was working class, the son of a coal miner, and he did share some of the contempt of his class for the intelligentsia. Once he'd made some literary friends in London, he had social entry to the academic elite, as it happens at Cambridge University, and once went on a visit there, but was disgusted by it. It made him dream of black beetles. He was particularly revolted, that is to say, by the Cambridge mode of homosexuality. The intellectuals he was most attracted to tended to be anti-rationalists. For example, German romantics such as Herder and Schelling. In the early 20s, he was of the opinion that most people should never learn to read or write. By the mid-twenties, he had reached the slightly softer opinion that learning should not be um, forced beyond the three R's. Children should have four hours of teaching a day to the age of 12, then either technical or academic education, and which a child was to be received, which a child was to receive would be determined by aristocrats of the soul, who are Lawrence's true aristocrats. In Women in Love, the half-intellectual conversation at Hermione's house is presented as malevolent. It is implicated by analogy in the First World War, which is contemporary with the writing and the setting of this novel. The talk at Breadleby went on like a rattle of small artillery. It's also implicated in the Satanic. They are all witches helping the pot to bubble. Ursula is cruelly exhausted by the powerful, consuming, destructive mentality that emanated from the company at Breadleby. On the other hand, though, Lawrence seized all of the education that was available to him, up to and including a scholarship to University College Nottingham. And in Women in Love, opposition to education is attacked, So this is on your handouts in the third chapter of the novel called Classroom. Ursula is teaching a primary school class about the structure of catkins. It was Lawrence's favourite subject by far at school and university botany. At the end of her lesson, Birkin and Hermione walk in to visit her. Hermione argues against mass education on the grounds that children who are roused to consciousness are crippled in their souls. 
She is then fiercely attacked by Birkin for saying this. Birkin, bear in mind, more than any other character in the novel, resembles Lawrence. Birkin challenges her. Would you rather, for yourself, know or not know that the little red flowers are there? She has no answer. Birkin's argument that children are at present imprisoned with a limited false set of concepts implies that a certain kind of education and a certain kind of discipline would free them. In other words, Lawrence in this scene uses Hermione to repudiate certain tendencies which he recognised in himself. And in fact, at a later point in the novel, Ursula accuses Birkin of being like Hermione. This is fair. If you were to read this passage without knowing who was speaking everything that Hermione is saying, you would, get, you would probably guess that it was Birkin. But then Birkin rounds on her for her hypocrisy. But Birkin elsewhere, just like Hermione, pronounces on the desirability of being unconscious. Quote, spontaneously to run or move like a fish in the water, the mystic conjunction, the ultimate unison between man and woman, a further sensual experience. Birkin, to give him credit, though, is aware of the contradiction involved in these thoughts and even more of the contradiction involved in trying to persuade others of them. He asks himself, perhaps he had been wrong to go to Ursula with an idea of what he wanted. Was it really only an idea or was it the interpretation of a profound yearning? If the latter, how was it he was always talking about sensual fulfilment? The two did not agree very well. This always is not, of course, literally true. He is not always talking about sensual fulfilment, but this does acknowledge the high proportion of the novel which Birkin spends in talking, just as it does the high proportion of Lawrence's life that he spent in writing. When Ursula accuses Birkin of self-contradiction, quote, he turned in confusion. There was always confusion in speech. Yet it must be spoken. Whichever way one moved, if one were to move forwards, one must break away through. And to know, to give utterance, was to break away through the walls of the prison as the infant in labour strives through the walls of the womb. Occasionally, he stops his own preaching to practice what he preaches. So he's explaining to Ursula about a new kind of love on the road to Beldover, and then he suddenly stops and kisses her. He then thinks, I was becoming quite dead alive, nothing but a word bag, he said in triumph, scorning his other self. Yet somewhere far off and small, the other self hovered. Thus far, I've been describing Birkin as a layered character who is aware of his contradictions and therefore psychologically similar to the kind of character you would find in a 19th century realist novel, especially perhaps George Eliot, by whom Lawrence was influenced. But there is also an aspect to his character which is new and which reminds you that you are in fact reading a modernist novel, not a 19th century one. Lawrence claimed in a letter to Edward Garnet that he, that he had found, quote, a different attitude to my characters. And he's no longer so interested in the, what he calls the old-fashioned human element. 
In this other aspect of Birkin's presentation, his speech is his action. After all, Birkin isn't real. He exists only in words, whether or not these words are inside speech marks for him or outside of them. And insofar as Birkin exists in speech, exists in language, there is no contradiction in him talking about being unconscious. This aspect of Birkin changes his mind repeatedly throughout the novel, often without any apparent psychological motivation. So what we have here is not a Bildungsroman, the story of the spiritual development of the central character, but it's Lawrence's repeated attempts to formulate, through the voice of a character, what it is he believes. Or, to use his own terms, to the attempts of his consciousness to interpret his soul. So, to give an example of Birkin's shifts of position across this novel, which, as I say, have no obvious external motivation, he starts by extolling sensuality and nothing else. Then he says that love between a man and a woman is the be-all and the end-all. Then he rejects love and humanity altogether and imagines an an apocalypse fondly. Then he demands stellar equilibrium between man and woman. Then he kisses Ursula and agrees that love is enough. Then he rejects love. Then he thinks of sex as polarisation. Then he wants blood brotherhood with Gerald. Then he wants a further sensual experience or he wants snow abstract annihilation or he wants the creative way of proud individual singleness or marriage or being free in a free place with a few other people to wanting connection with a man again. Ursula complains that Birkin always contradicts himself. But that's because she's interacting with him as a real person whom she finds frustrating, a hypocrite and a bully. We, however, are not having to deal with him as an actual person. He is words on a page. And we can respond to him more as a proposition. That's what I'm suggesting is new in Lawrence's mode of characterisation here. These two aspects of Birkin's character, though, don't quite sit with each other. It's as though, despite his claim to Garnet, Lawrence didn't quite have the courage to leave behind the old-fashioned, realistic kind of character. This is why when you're reading Lawrence, you're often not quite sure whether, in fact, you're reading a realist novel or a modernist one. Birkin's self-criticism also indicates Lawrence's concern about being accused of the same things. But he and Lawrence feel that the struggle into consciousness of how to live and of what the soul is, is a necessary struggle. To alleviate his spiritual malaise, he has to struggle into greater consciousness of soul truth as expressed in metaphysical terms. As his friend, who then became his enemy, John Middleton Murray, summed it up, we have to learn through consciousness, where and how to be unconscious. Learn it and pass it on. Birkin can't live as unconsciously as the simplest, most peasant-like characters in his works, or like Ursula's parents. Nor should he. What he should, according to Lawrence, do is keep his consciousness forever listening to his deepest self, or his soul, and teaching us to do the same. 
My final comment comes from an essay Lawrence wrote in 1923 when he was living in Mexico. It started as a response to Ulysses, which had come out the year before. And this essay is called Surgery for the Novel, hyphen, or a bomb. Lawrence in general was not good at titles. Women in Love is an appallingly bad and misleading title, but this is a good one. In this essay, Lawrence laments the day when philosophy and fiction were split. He says that as a result, the novel went sloppy and philosophy went abstract dry. Philosophy and religion were now too algebraic. The novel was too emotional. Women in Love can be read as emotion and philosophy striving to come together again. They strive. I leave it to you to judge how well they succeed. Thank you.